Imagine any of the top superstars of the past 20 years. You know, the kind of player who's headlined multiple all-star games, won season awards, and are sure locks for entry into the Hall of Fame. Now imagine that same player, in the prime of their life, suddenly swept up by a tornado. It sounds crazy, right? That sort of thing just doesn't happen to sports superstars. Well, something like this did happen in 1903 to Ed Delahanty. Here's how it happened. Today, on Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. And hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. I am, as always, your host, Jeff Lambert. Today, we're going to be talking about a gentleman named Ed Delahanty. Ed was one of the top baseball players of the 1800s. He was known as Big Ed, or the Human Grasshopper, or the King of Swat. This guy could hit for power and average. He was a terrific fielder with a strong arm and he was quick on the base paths. Reds hurler Philip Red Errett said Delahanty was, quote, the hardest man in the league for pitchers to puzzle. Sam Crawford, another fellow player, called him the best right-handed hitter I ever saw. He was one of the greatest batters the game ever produced. And great batters, like poets, are born, not made, right? Ed, in 16 years in the big leagues, he led the league in home runs twice. He led them in RBIs three times, in doubles five times, in batting average twice, and hits and triples one time each. On two separate occasions, Big Ed went six for six in a game, and he once went nine for nine in a doubleheader. Ed Delahanty topped the 400 batting average mark in three seasons, and that is tied for the most in history with Ty Cobb, Rogers Hornsby. Those are among the players that he is featured with in the conversation of his talent. So why do we not hear about this guy as much as we probably should? Well, there's a reason, and unfortunately, his demise outweighs his accomplishments when it comes to people talking about him. So we're going to discuss both in today's episode. Ed Delahanty's life, his career, what happened that led to his untimely death, and then just kind of bringing it all together and reflecting on the type of player that he was and how we should remember him. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Let's get into it. When Ed Delahanty died, it was seen as a national tragedy. As a matter of fact, there were even post-death sightings after, for years after, like we remember with uh, Elvis Presley. Forbes ran an article a couple years ago discussing how Ed Delahanty's death 
was very similar to that of the NBA's Kobe Bryant, which occurred a few years ago. Just in terms of the nation losing a major star at such a young age. Now, the circumstances of Ed's death is wrapped in mystery, so let's just go briefly through what happened. The date was July 2, 1903. Ed got on a train from Detroit to New York. We'll get into why later. He became disruptively drunk on the train. He was smoking, he was drinking, he started breaking things, and then he started threatening passengers with a razor blade. Finally, the conductor just had enough of him after several times telling him to knock it off, and he ordered Dell off the train. He stopped it in Bridgeburg, Ontario, which was right on the Niagara uh, River on the border of Canada and the United States. So after the train uh, kept going across the bridge, after Ed was was, uh, removed from the train, um, Ed Dillahanty decided to start walking across this bridge that connected both sides, that crossed over the Niagara River. There was a watchman on one side that saw him doing this, and uh, according to his account, he yelled out and tried to stop him from going across this bridge. He was obviously drunk and stumbling everywhere, but Delahanty would not stop. He pushed him to the side when he tried to stop him, and the drawbridge that was in the middle had started to open up to allow a boat to pass. And because of this sudden change in the uh, track's trajectory as he walked across, plus the fact that he was drunk, caused him to fall off of this bridge and plunge over 25 feet into the Niagara River. His body washed up four days later, 20 miles downriver, after the Niagara Falls part. He was naked. And the only thing that was left on his body was his necktie, his shoes, and his socks. And immediately speculation started, did he fall? Did he commit suicide? Was he murdered? Was it something more sinister? The, the, the conjecture was just everywhere after his death. And before we examine a little bit more, uh, maybe what occurred at that point what may have led him to his demise, I think it's really important, and this is the the point of this episode, I want to talk about what Ed accomplished as a player and the mark he left on the game. Because even though he died in very unusual and tragic circumstances, his playing career deserves to be remembered for what it was. So let's start at the beginning of Ed's life and go through what he did and what he accomplished. So, Ed Delahanty was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1867. His parents were Irish immigrants, and he was one of six brothers. His father worked several blue-collar jobs as they came up, and his mother ran a boarding house. Now, because of the, uh, the nature of living in a boarding house, uh, certainly a lot of people coming in and out, very hectic all the time, Ed would try and stay away from the crowds. He didn't like them. So he, as well as his brothers, decided to pick up sports as a way to be able to stay away from the house and have a hobby that they could do. All of them actually picked up on baseball. They became so good at it that all of them actually ended up 
becoming players in the major leagues. But Ed in particular was very skilled, and he was a natural at the plate. That was the thing that started to catch the eye of some of the local semi-pro club scouts in the area. He was offered a roster spot on one of these city squads, and the name of that team, which I thought was, was great, was the Cleveland Shamrocks. So the, the local Irish team immediately signed Ed. So Ed signed up, I believe he was 18 years old when he got his first contract offer. And he suited up for the Cleveland Shamrocks. He played so well that he was offered a roster spot for an even more professional club in West Virginia. They offered him $50 a month to go and play. So here's an 18-year-old kid making $50 a month, not bad. And he's playing for a semi-pro team already. And Ed was big. He was six foot one, 170 pounds. That was a monster for the time period. He was built strong and he could hit. So he went to uh, the West Virginia club and he played well. In 21 games, he hit 412. So he was already showing his prowess at the plate. But it wasn't just his play at the plate that started to catch even higher ups attention. He was also really skilled in the field. He was an excellent fielder. Uh, he was uh, just kind of that, that complete player that professional clubs were always keeping their eye out for. So eventually, word of his exploits made it all the way up to the top professional club in the area, the Philadelphia Phillies. So for that next season, the Philadelphia Phillies purchased his contract from the West Virginia Semi-Pro Club. And they paid Ed, who now two years later, the kid's 20 years old, they offer him a $2,000 salary per year. Now keep that in mind. Now if we adjust that for inflation in 1888, we're looking at about $55,000. That is not bad for the time period. So he's making good money, he's young, and he certainly has the rest of his career ahead of him in terms of potential. But Ed struggled his first few seasons in the majors, unfortunately, and this was mainly due to his free-swinging tendencies, uh, as I've seen it put. Uh, he wanted to swing for the fences very, very desperately, and uh, that hurt him early on in his career. It took him a couple years to get through that. He had roller coaster seasons all the way through 1891. But it was after that 1891 season where something clicked with him and he realized that he could do better. And so during that offseason, he really worked on his physical uh, ability. Uh, and he came into in just amazing shape for the 1892 season. And from 1892 for almost a decade till 1901, Ed was absolutely unstoppable. And this is where he starts putting up the numbers that we, we uh, certainly laud today and put him in the conversation with a lot of the greats that we discuss uh, just in casual conversation. So let me give you just, just some quick hits about what I'm talking about during this nine-year span. Ed led the National League in every major offensive category 24 times over nine years. So just to give you an example, he batted higher than 400 on three different occasions. He was the first player in baseball history to do that. He won two home run titles. He was the second player in history to hit four home runs in a single game. And if that doesn't sound uh, impressive enough, two of those four home runs that he hit were inside the park home runs. He was a speedy, speedy kid. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Uh, 
In addition to that, he hit four doubles in a game. And in one season, I believe he hit 55 doubles in, in one season, which again was just for the time period, an excellent, excellent stat point. So what, what happened with Ed? He's, he's absolutely at the top of his game. He's becoming a household name to baseball fans. What was the change in his game? We talked about that he worked on his physical ability, and that certainly always helps to come in, you know, into the season in shape. But there were some other reasons why Ed saw this newfound success at the plate over this next nine-year span. And we can, we can take some things from that. So one thing was that he, as he worked on his game, instead of just becoming a slugger, he really focused on developing his ball placement skills. He built a reputation over that nine-year span as being an excellent pull hitter. So he would just be able to place the ball wherever he wanted. If outfielders pulled back because they thought he was going to hit a long one, he would just knock it over the infielders' heads for a short outfield hit. He would practice patience at the plate, and he also became known being for very good, waiting for the right pitch for him. And he was in the top 10 in walks four out of those nine seasons during this stretch from 1892 to 1901. So he practiced patience at the plate. Now, the other thing that he did, and I don't think it's it's off from being a patient hitter, but he was one of the first batters that I've ever read about, especially in this era, era to practice swinging at the first pitch. He made a practice of it. It was one of the strategies he employed often. And he believed that it was something that gave him an edge. And he once told a reporter that he often liked to swing at the first pitch because a pitcher with good control usually tried to, quote, do his business, end quote, with the first offering. So he, he keyed in on that pattern and he would often go after that first pitch for that very reason. So as a hitter, Ed was one of the tops, if not the top player in the late 1800s because of uh, the ability that he showed. But he wasn't just a great hitter. He had other skills. And let's talk about those. Remember, he was arguably, arguably pro baseball's first five-tool player. He was dominant at the plate, but he was also an excellent fielder and a base runner. So he started off his career actually in the infield when he was first signed. And he wasn't a great infielder. I guess we could consider him below average, but he was fast. And so uh, later managers of the Phillies decided to try placing him in the outfield, first at center field and then at left field. And he turned into one of the best outfielders of the time period once he made that switch. He was fast, so he could catch up on fly balls that most other outfielders would have given up on, and he also had a rocket arm. He recorded 238 career assists to home plate. That is impressive. In addition to his fielding ability, as I said, he was very fast, so that translated into him being excellent once he got a hit at the plate. So he could place balls wherever he wanted, like we talked about, and he could easily turn singles into doubles with ease, just no problem whatsoever. And just to give you an example of that, he stole 455 bases over his career, and that includes one of those seasons between 1892 and 1901 where he stole 58 bases in one season. So this guy was very good at running the base paths. So here, here we have a guy who can hit, who can play the field, who can run the base paths, He's everything that you want in a player, and he's becoming a household name. 
Now, let's talk a little bit about what happened in terms of leading up to this fateful night that occurred with Ed's uh, life, ending tragically at such a young age. Uh, it all kind of ties together, and things started to go downhill for him after his 1901 season. So it was very commonplace during this time period, and, and really well into the 20th century, where team owners, they, they had total control over their players, and they would try and pay them as little as possible. I mean, we see this even in the 1919 World Series where the, the White Sox threw the series. That was one of the major reasons why they did it. They were so underpaid, and there was such uh, a power imbalance between baseball's ownership and the players. And this is what Ed found himself dealing with as his career went on. He established himself as one of the league's best players. But star power wasn't really a thing yet. He was one of the first big names in baseball that, that re people really knew. And mass media was just starting to become more commonplace. I'm not even going to say it was commonplace because remember, we're talking about the 1890s. So we're not, we're not even there yet where there's a radio in every home. So Ed's certainly to be commended because during this time period where uh, he didn't have the means to be able to get a message out easily to the masses, he used his star power to try and, and push for more player control so they could have a, more of a say over their well-being. So, you know, he started off in 1892. We're here in 1901. He had spent this whole time with the Philadelphia Phillies and he hadn't won a pennant. And on top of that, the team owner had barely increased his salary. He was now making, almost 10 years later, just $3,000 a year. He started off at $2,000 in 1888, and now here we are, and he's only making $1,000 more a year. That's not much of an increase. It certainly wasn't at the top of the rung during this time in the league. Um, but he felt he deserved better. And so what he decided to do to advocate for himself and for his fellow players, he decided, look, the National League isn't treating us well. There's this other league, the American League, and they have approached me and said that they want to be better advocates for the players. So let's all go to the American League and play there. And he began kind of convincing other top players in the National League to jump ship with them. And he did. So basically what happened was after the 1900 season, we saw an exodus of players from the National League who went to the American League. And that was mainly due to Ed's, um, what's the word I want to use here? His, his pushing, his, uh, his promotion of this league. He was actually dubbed an agent for the American League by several newspapers. And so we saw a lot of the National League's top players leave with Ed to go to the American League. Now, for Ed's efforts, as he's trying to cash in on his star power, he signed a $4,000 contract with the Washington Senators for the 1901 season. And that included a $1,000 signing bonus. So he's making five grand just by making this switch. Very smart. So Ed did well in Washington. So going into 1902, 1901 wasn't a great season, by the way, for the Senators. I think they finished fifth. They didn't do well in terms of making uh, strides towards winning a pennant, but Ed played well. And in the 1902 season, he did even better. He won the batting title for the American League. And that makes him still the only player to ever win, as of this recording, both a National League and an American League batting title. Impressive. 
But that 1902 season, that was really the peak of Ed's career. And things really went downhill for him after this. But it wasn't downhill in the sense that there was a drop in his playing abilities. It was something else. So what happened? We will discuss after, after we go to the seventh inning stretch. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's Jeff, the founder and host of the show, and I have some exciting news for you. In addition to the Baseball History Podcast you know and love, I'm launching a weekly email newsletter. In it, you'll find a link to each new episode, along with curated baseball history news, stories, polls, and more. It's completely free, and it's a simple way to enjoy the Rounders show that you love even more. And for those of you who would like to support the show as a subscriber, you can easily become a member by signing up using the link in each newsletter. For just $5 a month, I'll send you a weekly email with bonus episode content, ad-free episodes, and video companions. As members, you'll also have opportunities to vote on future episode topics and participate in exclusive events, such as the Rounders Fantasy Baseball League. If you'd like to send me a small token of your appreciation just once a year, the cost is just $30 for an annual subscription. And if you really enjoy the show and you want to send me a more significant contribution, I've created a Rounders Starting Nine tier for an annual payment of $100. You'll have my eternal gratitude and have your name included in the episode credits as a show producer. In addition, you'll get to choose the topic for one episode each year, and you'll get a free Rounders Starting Nine member t-shirt. Most importantly, you'll continue helping me grow this show. I'm grateful for your support, and I look forward to sharing more of the best stories from baseball history with you in the future. Click the link in the show notes to sign up for the email newsletter today, or go to rounders.substack.com. That's rounders.substack.com. Now, let's get back to the show. And welcome back to the show, everybody. So just to recap, we're talking about Ed Delahanty's stretch of from 1892 to 1901 just being one of the top players in the National League, uh, setting all these records, really becoming a very talented guy in, at the plate, in the field, on the base paths, you name it, he was doing it well. He decided that he wanted to advocate for himself more in terms of what he was making and trying to leverage his star power. And he jumped from the National League to the American League in 1901 and signed a contract for almost double with the Washington Senators. And then in 1902, that was his last big season. So there was a drop-off after this. That was officially really the last year of Ed's statistical run. And there was a reason for that, and it's going to lead into what we started off the show talking about, which was his untimely death. So what led Ed to get on that train and to be drunk and to get forced off of the train and to start walking across a bridge and fall off and die? What, what led up to that? There things must have happened. And there was. There was a reason. Everything led up to this point, at least after the 1902 season. So let's, let's run down what started to happen in Ed's life. 
After the 1902 season, during the off-season, the first thing that happened was his wife, Noreen, became ill. And for the life of me, I could not find what she became ill with. So if I have any listeners that have found anything on that, please let me know. I really looked for quite a long time trying to figure this out. But be that as it may, Noreen did become ill, his wife, and he ended up having to spend a lot of their finances trying to address her medical situation. Now, to to compound issues, Ed was also a very big drinker, loved alcohol, not exactly out of the ordinary for this time period, but uh, he ran up drinking debts in multiple cities over multiple seasons, and he started getting pressure to pay off some of his tabs. So we have him already going broke because of his wife's medical situation. He has uh, to deal with some debt from drinking. And on top of that, he's certainly drinking more because of this extra stress in his personal life. And on top of that, Ed was very into horse racing. So he had racked up some considerable debts betting on the ponies. So poor Ed here, he is in trouble financially. To top it off, (laughs) to make things even worse, Ed sees his worsening financial situation And in between 1902 and 1903, Ed decides, I'm going to try and leverage my star power even more. So he tries to go back to the National League. And he preliminarily signs a three-year contract with the New York Giants. And he's going to make somewhere in the range of $6,000 to $8,000 a season. So that could potentially fix his financial issues. But... Oh, and I should, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. So in addition to the six dollars to $8,000 per season he was supposed to get per season for three years with New York, the Giants also gave him an advance on his salary for his first season for $4,000. They gave him $4,000 up front. Now, what happened was there was a lot of infighting between the American and National League because they were stealing each other's players. And during this offseason between 1902 and 1903, The American League and National League agreed to, they signed an agreement honoring each other's existing player contracts and saying that teams would not try and poach other teams' players by trying to, you know, outspend. So all of a sudden, Ed found himself in a bad situation because the deal that he had just signed with the Giants to go back to the National League was now void. Doesn't sound like a huge problem at the top, but remember that cash advance I told you about? Yeah. Uh, Ed had already spent pretty much all of that $4,000 that the Giants had given him up front, and he didn't use all of it to pay off his debts. He still had debt. (laughs) So now he's going back to the Senators, the team he tried to get out of. He owes the Giants, the team that was going to sign him, $4,000, and he's kind of stuck in the middle because he doesn't want to go back to Washington. He feels like he's being underpaid. He can't go to New York because of this new agreement, and he has to repay them the four grand that uh, he already spent. So he decided to hold out, and he started negotiating with the senators about uh, what it would take for him to come back and play. Again, this was a move that was not commonplace for this time period, uh, leveraging this type of uh, player power. And he was actually able to get, for for better or worse, because it didn't really fix the situation, he was able to get Washington to agree to pay back the $4,000 that he owed New York by taking $2,000 a year 
from his salary with Washington over the next two years. So he owes four grand. They're going to take two grand out of his contract for the next two years. So I just threw a lot of numbers at you, but for those of you who may have been keeping math at home, Ed was only making $4,500 a year with Washington. So that means the league's top player is only making $2,500 a season because $2,000 right off the top is going to pay off his advance with his former team, team that could have been, however you want to say it. And he desperately needed money. So not only is he making considerably less than when he started this whole thing, uh, he still has all these debts he has to pay off. So, you know, this put Ed in a bad place, understandably. So the beginning of the 1903 season rolls around. He shows up to the Senators, uh, you know, first games. He's completely out of shape. He has not been taking care of himself. He's not motivated to be there. He was supposed to be in New York playing for the Giants and having a chance to win a pennant, which he always wanted, and making twice as much as he was making here with the Senators. But alas, that wasn't the case. So on top of that, so he shows up <laughs> to, to the 1903s and he's out of shape. He's not motivated. And on top of that, it comes out to uh, Washington's management that he was still trying to make backroom deals with other teams in other professional leagues around, uh, you know, around the United States to be able to jump ship and go play for them to try and get more money. So he's not there mentally or physically for this team. The season starts, he starts regularly showing up to games just drunk. He started giving away keepsakes of his, like precious things. He, he gave up his gold watch to a teammate just randomly. And his teammates thought, you know, obviously this is very out of character for Ed. Uh, it was reported midway through this season that he took out a life insurance policy on himself and had attempted suicide by turning on the gas in his bedroom. There were also reports that came out during the season that he had uh, threatened to kill himself several times. And this led to a lot of his teammates fearing for his safety. They decided to really keep a close eye on him whenever they were going back to the team hotel. Well, there was one night that Ed did not appreciate this, this uh, babysitting from his teammates and uh, reportedly chased one of them away with a knife. So as you can see, Ed is spiraling out of control. Remember, he's 34 going on 35 right now. He's a young player he, still. You know, he had certainly some of his best years still to play. But uh, that's not how things went. And so that brings us back to where we started. It's July 2, 1903. You just heard about the kind of season that he was having. He decided that he was going to get on a train. It was after a game in Detroit. He decided, I'm going to go take a train to New York. I'm going to go to the office of the New York Giants, and I'm going to somehow convince them to take my contract. There's got to be a way around this. There had been a previous player who had actually gotten around the rules that same season and was able to switch leagues. So he thought, well, if he could do it, so could I. So that's the reason that he got on the train. He was thinking, I got to make this happen. He starts on the train, he starts doing what he had been doing his whole life, but even more so since 1902, and he started drinking. A lot. The train's conductor asked him repeatedly to stop with his behavior. He refused. He reportedly took out a razor blade 
on the train and started threatening some of the passengers. It got to the point that the conductor decided to get a few other people that were on the train as well and kick Ed off the train. They just couldn't take it anymore. And so he was booted off the train. And that's what led him to being on this bridge. And just bringing it all back, we know that he started wandering off across the bridge and he fell off the bridge, 25 feet, falls into this 40-foot river, very fast moving, that dumps into the Niagara Falls. Whether he jumped or drunkenly stumbled off the edge of the bridge, we're never going to know. But we do know that this was the end of his life. And as I mentioned, he was found 20 miles downstream at the base of Horseshoe Falls. For those of you who have been to, uh, to Niagara Falls, he was found on the Canadian side. Uh, certainly not a fall that anybody uh, could logically survive. And so here's Ed. Ed Delahanty, dead at age 35. He was buried back in his, in his birthplace of Cleveland. Uh, his wife ended up suing the rail company and won um, due to their negligence for kicking him off the train where they did and failing to keep him safe. But that was it for Ed. Ed Delahanty suffered a very tragic end. But really, the real tragedy is that we tend to remember the way he died more than the way that he played baseball which is really the real crime. As we talked about, he had a, an impressive career, a Hall of Fame career. But this is someone I'm guessing a lot of us have never heard of or never knew really what he accomplished. We just, maybe you knew that he fell off Niagara Falls, but, uh, you know, he deserves more than that. Sports historian Mike Soule, he said about Ed that, quote, if it had not been for the way he died, he'd be remembered as one of the greatest hitters ever. Certainly one of the greatest right-handed hitters. He would rank up there with Rogers Hornsby, end quote. So the next time somebody mentions Ty Cobb's hitting or Babe Ruth's slugging, don't forget Ed Delahanty. He deserves to be a part of that conversation. Now, due to Ed's untimely demise and his heavy debts that were related to gambling, there are some interesting theories that point to Ed maybe having been murdered that night and that his demise may not have been an unfortunate accident. Now, I discuss this topic as part of our bonus content, so you can access this by becoming a premium subscriber just by clicking the link in the show notes. But overall, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me for another episode. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. Thank you.